Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We are working our way through this book. And back in chapter 6, the preacher began asking different kinds of questions like, what good is it? And how much is enough? And where is true wisdom to be found? over and again, asking us these questions so that he might push us to this God whom we are to fear. And ultimately, for us as Christians, this God who has come to us in Jesus Christ. This morning, here in chapter 8, he asks us another question, picks up one that he's asked before, but, but asks it again. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows what, what's really going on in our lives, in our world? It, it's a good question. Um, the answer that he's gonna, going to give us is the one we've already heard in our service. This is my father's world. Nothing happens to us by accident or chance. Oh, no, this world belongs to God. I belong to him. I can trust him. It's my father's world. But in order to hear this, this message the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants to bring to us this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come once again to Holy Scripture, desiring to hear you speak in and through it. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would open our eyes of faith this morning, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is chained. I say, keep the king's command. Because of God's oath to him, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Yet I know it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, that this also is vanity, and I commend joy. 
For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night uh, do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may, seek, may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So economists talk about the law of unintended consequences. That, that language of unintended consequences originally actually had a, a more positive connotation than, than we attach to it today. It, it, it was first articulated by Adam Smith, a great father of economics, who, who observed that there was an, an invisible hand at work as people pursued their own self-interested economic behavior that sometimes overruled in ways that were beyond what we could tell. That actually would bring about positive unintended consequences. But most of the time when we talk about the law of unintended consequences, we, and as well as economists, use that phrase and that law in a negative fashion. Um, we often think in terms of the bad economist or leader who focuses only on the visible and obvious consequences of their policies or, or of their actions. Um, conversely, the, the good economist or leader considers things that can be seen as well as a myriad of things that, that cannot be foreseen in order to try to protect against those. Um, there's all sorts of examples that you can think of of the law of unintended consequences playing out in a way that's incredibly negative. Just as an example, in 2011, the, the Deepwater Horizon uh, rig exploded, you might remember, and gushed all kinds of oil into our oceans. Uh, ecologists later decided or discerned as they tested the water around that area, around the rig, that actually the, the, the dispersant uh, that the oil companies came in to use to disperse the oil was actually more negative for wildlife, marine life, than the actual oil spill itself. It was a kind of unintended consequence of using the dispersant. Likewise, economists observed that in the aftermath of the, the Wells explosion, that there were greater economic effects from the, the, the government's decision not to drill under 500 feet in order to try to find more oil. There was more economic cost by that decision than by the well's explosion. Of course, we can think of all sorts of other examples of unintended consequences in policy and economics. But there's also a kind of a, a law of unintended consequences in our personal lives isn't there? Where we make decisions and we try to see and foresee the, the likely consequences, but, but there's unintended consequences that perhaps we willfully ignore or we can't foresee that end up creating all sorts of havoc. Like, for example, um, we make decision to, to pursue and receive a, a promotion at work. And the net effect of that is that we've got to travel more. 
We're away from home more. Um, we miss more Sunday services. Our families are taken out of the life of the church. And there are all sorts of, of negative consequences that result for us personally as well as spiritually. Or we make a decision to, as, after we graduate from high school and we head off to college that we're going to pursue a particular lifestyle that's going to involve more parties, more outies, more alcohol, way more alcohol, only to find out that the unintended consequences of those decisions might actually be addiction or, or health challenges or struggle in the classroom or, or all sorts of other things that might result. Or we enjoy a friendship with someone of the opposite sex at work as we're working on particular projects and, and before we know it, we desire and it becomes something more than that with the unintended consequence of potentially the end of your marriage or the destruction of your family, the continuing hardening of your heart towards God and towards others, and ultimately, perhaps, after that relationship blows up, a kind of bitterness towards the world. There are all sorts of unintended consequences to our actions, the kinds of things that result from either failing to reckon with those consequences or even willfully ignoring what could or might happen, all sorts of things that cause us to ask, and they happen, well, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? What might happen? Who knows if there's really any purpose in any of it? Who knows if there's really any consequence or, or even justice that might come as a result of my decisions? That question, who knows? Who knows what the consequences might be? Who knows if there's any purpose to it? That's the question that the preacher is asking us this morning. He actually asked it back in chapter 6, verse 10, a verse that actually began the second half of this book of Ecclesiastes. There he had said, who knows what is good for man while he lives? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Who knows? But the preacher here in our passage picks that language back up. In chapter 8, verse 1, you might, you might see it there in your Bible, if your Bible's still open. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? In a world in which we, we struggle to understand the meaning of what happens to us, a world in which we struggle to try to foresee the consequences of our decisions, a world in which we have to confess we, we can't control what happens to us. Can't control the positive or negative effects of what we decide to do. We, we were actually tempted in, the, in this kind of world to throw up our hands and simply shrug and say, well, who knows? Who knows if there's any meaning to it? Who knows if there's any purpose? What the preacher wants you to hear this morning, indeed what the Bible from Genesis to Revelation wants you to know this morning, is there is someone who knows. God knows. In fact, God alone knows the end from the beginning. He alone knows the purpose for this world as well as the purpose for your life and how your life fits into this tapestry of time he's unfolding. He alone will judge the wicked. He alone will bless those who trust in him at the end of the age. God is the one who knows. He knows our ways. He knows our work. He knows what he's up to. And because that's the case, my friends, we can trust him. We can trust this God who's come to us in Jesus Christ. 
This God who is the covenant maker, the covenant keeper, the one who shows mercy to us over and again, we can trust him because he's the one who knows and rules and overrules all that we say and do for his purposes and for his glory, but also for our good. He ordains what's right after all. Of course, the part of the problem with all of that isn't so much the wrestling with the fact that God knows. The real problem is, is that we don't know. We can't really see the big picture of our lives. And even those who seem to have the greatest amount of knowledge and the greatest amount of power in this world, that is kings, rulers, leaders, what we discover is they don't really know either. That's what the preacher is trying to get at here, I think, beginning in verse 2. He says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Now, what the preacher is doing here is he's describing reality uh, about the life of a courtier in the king's court. And he gives a number of instructions for such a one who serves the king. He says, obey the king's command. Think twice before you speak or before you leave the court. Um, Don't oppose the king too quickly. But the implication of this advice that the preacher gives to courtiers in a king's court is, is that there's going to be countless times where those who serve kings and leaders and rulers, or perhaps we might say those who serve bosses, uh, we're, we're tempted to say, what are you doing? Like, on what planet does what you're doing make sense? Because, of course, all too often, those who lead, their commands are foolish, capricious. The king seeks his own good rather than the good of his people. Or he demonstrates foolishness or or willfulness, and as a result, knows opposition. In other words, our kings, our leaders, our rulers, those who supervise us, they don't really know. They don't know if their decisions are going to bring blessing or whether it's going to bring disaster. They don't know what to do in the face of enemies. And the choices that they often make produce serious and, and disastrous consequences for their subjects. But that's true not just of kings and, and rulers. That's also kings uh, true of those of us who actually lead families. I'll never forget the moment of realization that came to me as a dad that, like, wow, I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, I had six, I had four kids. Um, they came close together. So at one point, Sarah and I had four kids under the age of six. And we were, we had gone from playing man to man, trying to take care of him to playing zone. There was cacophony and crazy all over. And then it dawned on me in the midst of all this crazy was we were just trying to keep them alive. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. But then the second moment of realization hit. If I don't know what I'm doing at this point in time, and I'm just making it up as I go along, my father, my dad, he didn't know what he was doing either. And that was the moment of true realization because uh, I assumed growing up that my dad was um, omnipotent. He seemed to have all power over my life. He was omniscient. He seemed to know everything about me and what I was up to. And he seemed to be omnipresent, especially when I was getting in trouble. My dad always seemed to show up at the wrong moment. And, and, and I just thought that he knew, but 
But then I realized with my own kids, no, dad was just making it up too. He didn't know. Because, of course, none of us do. Right? That's part of what the preacher wants us to understand. Is we look at our kings and our leaders and our rulers and we recognize they make foolish decisions at times because they don't really know. But the fact of the matter is, is that none of us do. Humans don't know. Look at what the preacher says in verse 6. He says, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. The preacher tells us there's, there's a time and, and a way for everything. But unless someone from outside of us tells us what's actually going on, tells us the meaning of our lives, we don't know. We don't know and we can't control our lives. That's, that's what he's getting at here. I love the way that Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the Bible, the message, renders these two verses, verses seven and eight. Peterson has it as, yes, there is a right time and way for everything, even though unfortunately we miss it for the most part. It's true that no one knows what's going to happen or when, who's around to tell us? No one can control the wind or lock it in a box. No one has any say-so regarding the day of death. No one can stop a battle in its tracks. No one who does evil can be saved by evil. Did you hear what he's saying? We can't control our lives. We can't control our lives. We can't control the day of our dying. We can't control anything about us. We can't control the evil that happens to us. We have no real control. It's part of what the preacher says here in verse 10. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also his vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Then verse 14, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. What is the preacher saying? We can't even execute basic justice. Instead, the, the wicked receive honorable burials after long lives of wickedness. And because they seem to appear to slip justice in this life, we begin to wonder out loud, who knows? Who knows if there's any justice in this world or in the next? Maybe we get the best of this world with no punishment at all in this life or the life to come. That's what the world says, isn't it? But if we're honest, we're afraid of that that's actually how it is. I mean, we ask in our hearts if there's any justice. If there's anyone who will set the, the wrongs to right. And we wonder if there's anyone who knows, if, if there's anyone who's listening. Because of the evil that happens to us that we can't control, we wonder if there's anyone who's going to do anything about it at all. There's this great scene, this, this small bit in the 2006 movie Superman Returns. Um, Superman and Lois Lane are, are, are flying around Metropolis. Um, and they're in conversations. Superman wants to take her up above Metropolis 
in order to give her an answer to an article that she had written in the Daily Planet titled, Why the World Doesn't Need Superman. And as they're talking, Lois says, the world doesn't need a savior. And Superman interrupts her and says, listen. And then there's a pause. And she says, I don't hear anything. To which Superman says, but I hear everything. You wrote that the world doesn't need a savior. But every day I hear people crying for one. And that's right. This, this crying for a savior is ultimately a crying for someone outside of ourselves who knows, who sees, who listens, who cares, and who's going to do something about it all. And that's exactly the good news that the preacher wants to bring to us this morning. That on all the times when we throw up our hands and we say, who knows, the preacher comes with the word, well, God knows. In fact, God alone knows, and he alone knows all the ways of human beings. And in particular, he knows two particular things about the ways of human beings. First, he knows that the sinful ways of human beings will, in fact, come to judgment. I think that's the point of, of verses 12 and 13. You may want to look at it. The preacher says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. It will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So the preacher's telling us this, while it looks like on the surface that the wicked prosper, that the wicked get away with their sin, there is a judgment day coming for those who sin. God knows, he sees, and he will bring the wicked to account. That's, that's the consistent teaching of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We heard it this morning in the call to worship. We sang it this morning in Psalm 97. Over and again, the Bible tells us there is a day of judgment coming, but you also hear it particularly from Jesus himself. Over and again, Jesus said there is a judgment day coming for both the righteous and the wicked. For example, in John chapter 5, Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to a resurrection of judgment. And so those who've trusted in, in God, and especially in the God who's come to us in Jesus Christ, who've obeyed him as the great king, on that last day they'll know great joy. But Jesus tells us, he warns us, there's coming a judgment day for those who rejected God, for those who flouted his ways, for those who rejected his mercy, for those who pursued their own gain, they will know eternal judgment because God knows all the ways of human beings. He will hold the wicked to account. He will bring them to the bar of judgment. But there's a second thing that God knows about the ways of human beings, and it's this. He, he knows the joyful ways of humans who trust and fear him. And he knows these joyful, joyful ways as they happen both now and then. In verse 12, you actually heard him speak of then. Yet I know, the preacher says, that it will be well for those who fear God. 
because they fear before him. I think this is talking about the judgment day. For those who've trusted in Jesus Christ, we don't fear the judgment day. Why? Because on that day, we're going to plead the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. This blood that covers all our sins, this righteousness that stands in for our own. So when we come to our dying day, we stand before the, the bema, before the judgment seat. What we expect to hear, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. And that day of rest will be a day in which the sorrow and pains of this life will be wiped away. And all that will remain is glorious joy glorious joy. Isaiah in Isaiah 25 prophesies, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the, the Lord has spoken. All tears wiped away. But that's not just a promise in the Old Testament. It's brought forward to the new. In Revelation chapter 7, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. On that day, on that last day then, your joy will be so great that you will struggle to try to remember the sadness and sorrow and difficulties of this life and you won't be able to do it. It will be overwhelmed by joy. We have a taste of that now, don't we? We can think back perhaps to certain times where there was the times of great pain and difficulty 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. And if you're like me at all, you struggle at times to exactly how did that happen? And, and, and how did that all play out? And what did he say? Or what did she say? Or what happened? What? We can't reconstruct the details. All we have is the gnawing remaining sense of pain from what happened to us in the past. But on that day, on the last day, not only will you not even be able to reconstruct what happened to you in the midst of the difficulties and sorrows of this life, you won't have the pain any longer. That gnawing pain will be gone and will be replaced with great joy in the presence of the Savior. That's what awaits us then, but what the preacher wants you to know is the God who knows all your ways, he desires for you to know joy now. That's what he says. Look at verse 15. He says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through all through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now, this language has shown up several times in Ecclesiastes, but we shouldn't rush by it because of familiarity. For those who trust in God, who know that, that all their sorrows and pains will be taken away in the last day, that in fact God knows all their ways, that he is involved, that what our God ordains is in fact right, we, we can know joy now in our daily moments. We can enjoy our daily lives in the full confidence that God has given us today. He's given you today. He's given you good gifts, food, drink, family, family of faith as we worship together. He's given you all that today. We don't have tomorrow yet. Lord willing, as we go to sleep tonight, we wake up tomorrow, then tomorrow becomes today, and that's the day that God's given to you. But you have today. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day, give us today our daily bread. Don't give us tomorrow's bread today. No, just, just give us daily bread 
today. That's what God's given you. And, and in the good gifts that God's given you today, you can see his hand of mercy. You can, you can see the possibility of joy because God is the one who's caring for you right now, today. It's the single greatest lesson that I have learned as Sarah and I have walked with through her cancer journey over the last two years, which has been super difficult for me because I am the future-oriented planner type. I like to think about what's going to happen six months, 12 months, 24 months, five years. I plan my preaching out 18 months in advance. I am a planner. I can't plan. I mean, I do plan. But really, all I've got is today. All Sarah and I have, all she has is today. All you have is today. And God has given you good gifts today. If you will just open your eyes to see it, that's why the preacher commends joy. Joy, not just then, in the new heavens and new earth where you know a new body and every tear is wiped away and you can't remember not only the events, but even the pain. Not just then, but now. Now. Because God knows. He knows all of your ways. And he's caring for you right now, today. Shouldn't that, shouldn't that give you some measure of confidence that you can trust in this God who gives good gifts to you today? That you can be joyful in him today? Shouldn't you be able to trust in the fact that this God who you are trusting in is not just the God who knows all the ways of men, but he's also the one who knows all the works of God? That's what's important for our hearts. We may not know what God is up to, but he does. And he's the God who cares for you and continues to show you mercy and grace day by day by day. It's part of what the preacher, I think, is getting at right at the end of the section. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day or night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. We don't know. And though we labor and strive to understand, to know wisdom, to see the business of the world, to try to connect all the dots and see it all whole, we will never see all the work that's done under the sun. No matter how hard we try, it's not going to happen. And for some of us, that feels discouraging. But for those of us who trust in this God who's come to us in Jesus Christ, this God we name as Father, Son, Spirit, this confidence that God knows, even when we're confronted by things that, that we don't understand or that overwhelm us or threaten to undo us, this, this reality that God knows and he cares is what ultimately anchors us in the midst of our fears and doubts, in the midst of our confusions and questioning, in the midst of our ignorance and willfulness, in the midst of our intended and unintended consequences. We can take up the words that came from the poet William Cooper and we can say God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. For God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Friends, God will make it all plain one day because God alone knows. And in the midst of all of our crazy that we experience at times, 
And we have to come to the end of ourselves and say, Lord, thank you for today. I confess I don't know. But I trust that you do. And, and because you know, it's enough. It's enough. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, Spirit, we do confess it's enough that you know that you are the one who, who governs all your creatures and all their actions, the one who ordains what's right, the one who moves in mysterious ways. We trust in you and rest in you, knowing that you know. And so, Lord, we ask that this hymn we're going to sing become a prayer for us, not just to our souls, but to you, that, that our souls would rest, that we would be still, and that we would trust in you. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals this morning and turn to number 689. We'll sing the first three verses, have the benediction, then sing the last.